The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TakeCast, Episode 5. I'm Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. Today is a pretty special episode. I'm interviewing Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated about his book, Masters of Modern Soccer, and I will read all of your ratings and reviews on iTunes after the interview. All right, everyone, I'd like to welcome Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated uh, to the podcast. He is the writer of Masters of Modern Soccer, How the World's Best Play the 21st Century Game. Grant, thank you so much for doing the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Pretty, uh, pretty good. The book, the book is fantastic. I would recommend nice. everyone read it. We, we do book recommendations on the podcast sometimes, but my recommendation is just going to be this one. It features interviews with a lot of, uh, you know, kind of the preeminent soccer players uh, in the world. But the chapter that was most interesting to me was the one with Michael Vork or Zork, who is the uh, you know sporting director at Borussia Dortmund, uh, a German soccer club in the Bundesliga of uh, I'm of which I'm a fan. And a point that you really drove home in your interview with him is that the club does acknowledge that they are a stepping stone. And this is not something, this is unique to European sports. You know, there, there's not an equivalent to this in the United States because, you know, all these leagues have uh, salary caps. But they do acknowledge that they are a place that players go before they play for Real Madrid or Barcelona or Manchester United. But the question that really interests me is, is his job and by extension the manager's job is it more of a business position than really just a footballing one? Uh, because the people who benefit from Dortmund always winning these contract negotiations are not the fans. The fans would win if, if Usman Dembele was still playing or if Lewandowski was still playing or if Hummels was still playing. And so I just kind of wondered your perspective on that of uh, business versus actual footballing product. I think Michael Zork, from my experience of talking to him multiple times over the last couple of years for this book, really has both feet firmly planted uh, in different places. One foot in the business side of things and the selling and uh, purchasing of players. Uh, and then the other foot on the sporting side. And you can see that literally physically in where he spends his time. He splits his time between the training ground in Dortmund, which is on the east side of Dortmund, and the business office of Dortmund, which is right next to the stadium more downtown. And those are, there's very few people at that club that spend time at both places. Right. So he wants to be around the players every day to some extent and be someone who observes part of practice. Uh, he'll be on the bench during games. Uh, he wants to be someone that the players can come and talk to if they feel like they need to talk about something at the club. But he's also very much in charge of the overall strategy of the club in terms of not just how they're going to play uh, from 
youth team all the way up to the senior team, but uh, hiring coaches uh, in terms of uh, buying and selling players with uh, his team that, uh, that he works with. And it's not a lot of different people, but uh, it's very clear to me from spending time with him that uh, he's, he's well regarded as basically the best or one of the two or three best directors of football in yeah. European soccer. When you look at his track record of buying low and selling high over the years while also still competing to win trophies. I had an interesting discussion with him about Monchi, who's sort of uh, this competitor of his, who's also yeah. recognized as one of the top directors of football in European soccer. And there's a ton of respect from Michael Zork toward Monchi and what he achieved at Sevilla for so many years before Monchi moved to Roma. But what was interesting, I thought, in the book that Zork said was when Monchi was at Sevilla, nobody really expected him to compete to win the Spanish league. Right. And people expect Dortmund to compete to win the Bundesliga. Now they haven't gotten that close in the last few years, but, uh, you know, Zork was very quick to say, look, we have the, the biggest attendance in world soccer every week, and those 80,000 fans don't care about our bank account. They want to see us compete to win trophies. Do you have an idea of their marketing plan that led them to be so successful in the United States? I, I would actually think they have more support in the United States than Bayern Munich does. Like I, I would see a Marco Royce jersey on the street before I would see a Lewandowski jersey. Like just based on my experience, more people know about Dortmund than any other German team. You know, I, I don't have all the data in front of me. I would guess and every, for everyone, it's anecdotal, right? I live in New York, and I can go by what I see here. I would guess now that Bayern has had this office opened in New York for the last mm -hmm. couple of years uh, and has really made it a priority to get a bigger fan base in the U.S. and in China. That's their international strategy, that Bayern probably has more fans in the U.S. today than Dortmund does. But I think Dortmund certainly has what I would call – not in a pejorative way, sort of hipster soccer fans in totally. this country. That's totally what it is. Um, you know, it's a little bit like, I think, Arsenal and how they develop fans in the United States where, um, you know, even before Pulisic got to Dortmund, I think there were, were quite a few soccer fans here in the U.S. who liked the way Dortmund played, uh, liked the fact that they weren't the obvious choice of Bayern Munich if you're going right. to pick a team in Germany and saw a lot of the players that were coming out of Dor or Dortmund and saying, you know, I like those guys, Marco Royce being one of them. Um, and, you know, even under Klopp, I think uh, that was a team at Dortmund that, you know, that won the Bundesliga a couple of times that did make uh, the deep champions league run to the final where they lost to Bayern. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was all before Christian Pulisic got there. Now, once he got there, then obviously even more Americans are going to, look at Dortmund and, uh, and, you know, I think appreciate, especially two seasons ago, their run to the quarterfinals of Champions League and what they went through dealing with the, the bus attack, which is horrible. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the question is, you know, is, you know, is Dortmund, you know, this past most recent season wasn't as good, though they still qualified for Champions League, to sustain the strategy, as I explained in my book, uh, that Zork has, you really do need to qualify for Champions League every year. And if you don't, then then the strategy gets pretty screwed up. Well, you just miss out on so much money and, and your recruitment also goes way to the side as well. 
Right. Because if you miss champions league, yes, you miss that, that revenue that comes with it, but it also means that it might be tougher to sign guys to longer extensions on their contracts. And that's what led to having to sell three guys at this in the same summer, two summers ago uh, with one year left on their deal. Uh, it also means that if you're trying to get players to choose Dortmund over an offer from say Real Madrid, you have to be able to offer them champions league football and the ability to play champions league football. If you can't do that, they're not going to choose you over Real Madrid. Yeah. It's the, it's the exposure, right? Like they, they need the exposure. They need the champions league football to raise their market value so they can be sold on for more and their agents can make more. And it's kind of that whole world of, of inside European soccer. But uh, the, the book also includes a chapter where you do interview uh, Christian Pulisic. And uh, I was just wondering in your conversations with Zork and uh, with the young attacking midfielder, did you get a sense of how analytics and kind of the math of soccer influenced the way that Dortmund play on the field? You know, a lot, of the, a lot of the discussion in the book is how it influences their player personnel decisions and stuff like that. But I was wondering if you had any insights on how that analytics impacts like their tactics. My sense is that like a lot of clubs, they, at Dortmund, they do uh, pay attention to advanced statistics and data metrics. I don't know exactly. I think it depends on the coach at the time, how much they're going to present that to the players or how much they're going to use it to, to make decisions about week-to-week stuff with the first team. Uh, clearly, you know, I remember talking to Polisic when he was playing under Thomas Tuchel there, and you know, I thought it was interesting how much Polisic said the team discussed some sort of statistics, metrics, even at halftime and right after a game. So that was something that was important to Tuchel. Now, I did not do any interviews with Polisic for the book after Tuchel left. So I don't know if that's changed up a lot since then. I do know from, from talking to Zork, they certainly do use some uh, data in terms of identifying players, but I was slightly surprised that they don't as much as I thought they would um, in terms of, you know, you look at what they've done over the years to identify Lewandowski, who was still in Poland. I was actually amazed with how simplistic he explained that decision. It was just, he led whatever league he was in and goals all these years. He almost certainly has to be good. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm like, okay. So yeah, he led the Polish third division, second division and first division in consecutive years and goals. So yeah, sure. That's, you know, the point he's making is, just because it was the Polish third division, he still, it still mattered to him that this young player had led the league in goals. And I get that. I, there's something to be taken from that. But yeah, it wasn't exactly you know, the most advanced uh, data analysis. Um, you know, and you know, identifying a guy like um, Aubameyang. Uh, in France when he got him, or Kagawa when he got him from Japan. That was the one that seemed like there was something they're not saying. They have to have some sort of deep data kind of, maybe not machine learning, but some sort of threshold that identifies guys like like Dembele played for a very small club, Kagawa played for this very small club. They have something that they're not willing to share publicly with those guys. And, that, and that's certainly possible. You know, I, everyone knew about Dembele. So I, like, but like Kagawa, yeah, not everybody knew about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I certainly think there's probably something there that he didn't want to go into great detail on. But yeah. I also get that that's part of this 
you know, modern data is, is that nobody wants to give away their advantage. Yeah, which is uh, pretty interesting. There, there are some services that offer the data that clubs are using, like uh, StatsBomb. I don't know if you've had any interaction with them, but they're, they're launching this public data service that is data that they've shared with the teams. And actually, this isn't on our agenda, but I was just wondering, what's kind of the attitude you get in general? from coaches and players when, when stuff like that comes up? Do you, are they generally receptive towards it? Are they generally kind of standoffish? Like what's the, what's the overall perception of advanced data? My sense at this point is that it's every club's, just about every club has data analysts. The problem is, is that the manager rarely uses it. Tony Pulis doesn't care what the data analysts have to say. Right. And so that's why you, and in the end, have clubs like Brentford uh, and Michelin, which are owned by Matthew Benham, a former uh, gambling executive who developed an algorithm that made him millions and millions of dollars and allowed Mm -hmm. him to buy soccer teams. They're all about going all in on data because other clubs are not. They're not going all in, but you know, even Arsenal bought a statistical, you know, a data company, but that doesn't mean it was always using it. And so, I know a lot of frustrated uh, data analysts and really smart guys who have these formal relationships with teams in the Premier League and and just feel like they're not being used. Yeah. Uh, so back in the rooting in a little bit more an actual tactical discussion. I think something that you and Vincent company both kind of talked around in the chapter with him was that high pressing is the norm now at like really top level European football games. Like you watch the Madrid Liverpool game, the, the midfielders are battling it out and the defenders are, you know, 10 yards behind them. And the, so the role of the central defender has changed and something he talked about was, you know, really wanting to develop ball skills so that he could, you know, move around, pass the ball, kind of play up the field. But he also said something that I thought was really interesting, which is the ability to snuff out those attacks when kind of everything is breaking down around you is at least somewhat instinctual, if not entirely instinctual. And a common complaint I heard this year from a lot of pundits was just, top-level European football, the defenses are horrible. You know, these massive comebacks um, by Roma, you know, the absolute destruction of Liver- of Manchester City by Liverpool is just defending is, is not good anymore. But I kind of wonder, maybe central defenders are just being asked to do too much. Is it, is it really fair for Virgil van Dijk or Costa Manolas to be all alone 30 yards away from goal and expected to stop Leo Messi? Like, is, is that something that you see being like one of the biggest change contexts of football from even 10 years ago. Yeah. And company got, got into this as, as I had a mention of an interview I did with Paolo Maldini as well. Of You know, it certainly seems like there are fewer truly elite center backs now than there were 15, 20 years ago. And Maldini thinks that's the case. And he feels like it's because, all of these defenders today are being asked to do things besides defending. And so that makes sense. I don't know how we necessarily go back to the old days because I don't necessarily see that happening. Um, But if your company, he's like, you know, look, it is possible to still be a top defender. Uh, It's 
heavily reliant on how you work with your teammates. Individual defending is kind of not a complete topic, really. Um, but also you have to have these skills. Now, I thought it was interesting when company compared playing under Pellegrini to playing under Guardiola. He felt like under Pellegrini, he was even more exposed as a center back because mm -hmm. both fullbacks were bombing forward so often under Pellegrini. And usually under Pellegrini, they had almost entirely attacking central midfielders on the field. And that left him exposed. But under Guardiola, he says there's more balance. Uh, he's not always asking both fullbacks to get forward, at least at the same time. Uh, they do play with a defensive midfielder. And, and he feels like you know, not as much is being asked of him as maybe it was the case under Pellegrini. So that's a tactical decision that someone is making. And uh, I don't know if we're ever going to go back to the days of Arrigo Saki and Maldini playing for Milan in his heyday. Right. But, um, you know, in those days, uh, you know, it, it depends also if Maldini was playing as a center back or as a fullback. But, um, you know, I, I found it interesting that Maldini had said something to the effect of when I asked him who his favorite center back was today, he's like, you know, Sergio Ramos, but but he makes mistakes too and tries to get forward too much. So, yeah, exactly. um, <laughs> so yeah, I, mean, it, it, I think it's an interesting discussion to ask why center backs aren't, there aren't as many really elite ones as there used to be. I kind of think part of it too is that, uh, well, part of the, this tactical shift is a result of analytics because crosses have kind of been found out. Like crosses are just not really an effective way to score goals. So fullbacks are just asked to do that a lot less. So the, the modern role of a fullback, I think even from when I really first started watching soccer, you know, six, seven years ago, fullbacks really outside of like specific systems where th there's only one striker. I, I can't even name more than five teams that really ask their fullbacks to cross much. Yeah. I mean, it depends on, you know, case by case, but yeah, I think it's something that uh, we are seeing different approaches. And I think, that's not coincidence, you know, right. I mean, a lot goes into deciding what, uh, how you're going to attack, how you're going to try and score your goals. Yeah. And I think, um, there's also as defending has kind of been found out, like teams want to possess the ball more, like maybe not necessarily Liverpool, but if you kind of look across the major European leagues, like people will emulate Guardiola stuff as best as they can, I think right now. It's tough, obviously, when you don't have the talent that Guardiola has, you know, yeah. and who does? Um, but that's why in some ways I think Real Madrid was so interesting this year because under Zidane, it's, they were sort of not the, you know, the, the pressing as much that we saw with so many other top teams this mm -hmm. season. Um, and so that in itself is a tactical choice, but one that I think Zidane, at least in Champions League, if not the league in Spain, uh, was able to make work for him. Well, I, that is very interesting that you point that out. Both Real Madrid and Liverpool, the two Champions League final teams, those, they were not possession-based teams. They were kind of, they kind of were more focused on the counterattack. Liverpool, it just made sense with their personnel. They were always overrun in the midfield. And I think, I think that style suits the forwards that exist on Madrid's roster now, because Ronaldo's not nearly as good on the ball as he was, but he's still, you know, one of probably the best finisher in the world. And outside of him, they didn't really have healthy forwards kind of all year long. Yeah. And, you know, you get the sense that they're going to be in the market for a forward 
in the offseason. I mean, there's going to be some changes at Real Madrid. Um, maybe more, even more now that we see Zidane won't be there. But, um, yeah, I, I think maybe in some ways Zidane deserves more credit than he's gotten for I agree with that. his coaching yeah. decisions and making the best use of the talent that he had and what they want to be doing. Yeah. So uh, you've done cover stories on Lionel Messi and in your book, you interviewed World Cup and Champions League winners and you did a book on David Beckham and, and you at least have had conversations with some of the most impressive soccer players in the world. And uh, to me, the most impressive chapter of your book was on, on Christian Pulisic. And I just kind of wondered from someone who has experience with all of these people, what do you project for his future? You know, do you see him being uh, an EPL regular or does he stay in, in Germany and that's what he's best suited for? And, and also how much of your job as kind of the main USA soccer journalist has become centered around him? You know, it's been nice getting to know Christian Pulisic over the last couple of years. Um, you know, our first interview that we did was actually like a 12 minute podcast interview in person in Dortmund, just as he was, getting into the first team and uh you know it's amazing to me how quickly he has improved on the field uh at a very rapid rate especially early on there uh but also in terms of media and how comfortable he is with interviews and uh and how smart he is i mean i do think you know, i've had several interviews with him since that first one now and you know, he was still 18 years old when the main interviews for this book were being done. And yet he was able to start champions league games at 18. Right. And, and yet he held his own in a chapter with Shabi Alonso, who's won the world cup and champions league is one of the smartest players I've ever interviewed. So I think that makes Pulisic look good. And I think any U S fan who follows Pulisic will read this chapter and say, wow, this kid really thinks the game deeply. Yeah, uh, It's not something where he's just going out there and going through the motions. It's not something that's just a physical thing. He thinks the game of soccer. And he also understands that he hasn't really achieved anything yet, that mm -hmm. what he's on is part of a process. And too many teenage U.S. prospects over the years sort of felt like they had made it just by going to Europe and the way Pulisic talks is he totally understands that to get where he wants to be, uh, he's got to improve in a lot of areas on the field. None of them more importantly than just figuring out, a, you know, how to perform better once you beat somebody one-on-one. -on -one. I thought that was a very interesting thing talking, you know, his best skill is beating these defenders one-on-one -on -one, and he kind of, he broke down several scenarios where he'd done that but then also kind of like the decision-making process, like that, that just kind of takes a while, like fight, figuring out the right thing to do when you're in the box and free, I think is really difficult for a lot of young players. You know, and just the mere fact of watching top level games a lot on television, you know, people might be surprised. I run into a lot of young players, especially who never watch never watch. And it kind of drives you nuts. At, you know, you're kind of like, what are you doing? Are you, aren't you like studying all this? Like, like, isn't that something? And, and not everybody does it that way. But I think for the, for the people who do like Pulisic, that that's a really good sign of somebody who um, not only wants to be aware of what's going on out there, but wants to, 
to get better and better all the time. If there's one kind of constant thread through all the figures in this book, it's that even in your 30s, even after you've won World Cups and Champions Leagues and Premier Leagues like Manuel Neuer and Xavi Alonso and um, Vincent Company, all three of those guys want to get better all the time and feel like they're still learning new things. And if they're learning new things, any player can learn new things. I think the biggest thing that tied the book together for me was everyone you interviewed was very self-aware. They all were very aware of what their actions meant and how they fit in the larger process of the team. And I don't think that's something that can be taught. I think that kind of separates to be, to be aware of what you're doing inside of a larger context, I think is like a really unique human trait overall. And then when you combine it with someone who's really good at soccer, like that's how you find really special players, I think. Yeah, there's a reason why I picked these guys for this book, because a lot of thought went into that. I wanted to get a cross-section of guys from different countries, but I also wanted players who weren't just really good, but also were in that sort of 1% of players who are really intelligent and good at communicating what it is that they do. These are the kind of guys, that 1%, who are going to become coaches someday or top television analysts and you know any of these guys in this book could do that and and many will uh and so that's what made this so special for me was to ask guys questions but also just to sit back and listen when uh you know if you got them talking sometimes they would talk for a few minutes at a time i'm certainly not going to cut them off right yeah so changing, uh, changing directions here uh, a little bit. Something that we've discussed on this podcast in the last couple episodes is the idea that the major American sports right now, which I would consider baseball, basketball, and football, I'm sorry, hockey fans, your finals games are being shown on cable networks, so it just is what it is. But these, these games are kind of approaching from a mathematical perspective to be solved you know everyone in baseball is trying to hit home runs pitchers are trying to generate strikeouts in basketball everyone's shooting more three-pointers uh in football it's about the persistent short passing game my theory my working theory right now is that soccer is from a actual playing the game out standpoint it's not solvable because the interactions are so great but the scoring is so low that it every game just has too much variance for it to actually be solved in terms of strategy. And I think that's huge for its eventual popularity in the United States because Americans do want parity in their sports. And soccer gives that even when the financial advantages are massive. Like Manchester United lost to all three of the promoted teams this year. Stuff like that really does not happen in football, especially when it comes to the playoffs. So my question to you would be as someone who's observed this phenomenon, you know, since since the 90s, since, you know, the first round of aging European stars who came to the MLS. What do you think right now is driving soccer's popularity in the United States? And, you know, the million-dollar question, do you ever see soccer becoming the sport, you know, 30, 40 years down the road in the United States? You know, there's different factors driving the popularity of soccer and the growth of that in the United States. Uh, You know, there's never one answer. You know, I think over the years, maybe we've tried to be – you know, you know, thinking there was some single magic bullet, like, you know, David Beckham is going to mm-hmm. make soccer bigger in the United States. Well, David Beckham was one of a lot of things that have made soccer bigger in the U.S. over the last decade. So, you know, I think you've got uh, 
the the FIFA game I think has had a huge impact. Uh, yeah, I think right. the availability to watch pro soccer on television in the U.S. has had a huge impact. We've gone from having basically no soccer, pro soccer on TV in the U.S. 15 years ago to this is now, I think, perhaps the best country in the world in which to watch soccer Yeah, you today. can stream any game. Like the, there's, an Ital- there's an Italy-Netherlands game, international friendly, that I'll be able to watch in 15 minutes, and it will right. not be hard to find. Yeah, so I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, uh, the U.S. women's national team has driven popularity a lot going back to the late 90s. Uh, and any time the World Cup is on uh, men's or women's, that's creating millions of new fans around the United States. And it's also why it's such a missed opportunity for the U.S. men not to be in this World Cup in Russia. Yeah. Um, you know, it's... It's just a lot of different things happening, demographic changes in the U.S. Uh, There's no longer a stigma associated with being a fan of the sport of soccer like there was when I first started Sports Illustrated in the 90s. Um, When you look at demographic studies that say among teenagers in the U.S., watching pro soccer is pretty close to watching the NFL in terms of favorite sport to watch. that's pretty remarkable. Uh, then you add in Spanish language soccer consumption in the U.S. and how the most popular league to watch in the United States on television is Liga MX, you know, in Spanish. Uh, but that's a hugely powerful market force. So soccer's already gotten even bigger in many ways than I imagined it would. Yeah. You know, and I didn't think any of this was inevitable, but it seems like the sport now is on the path to um, to really being one of the core sports of, of the United States. Uh, and right now, all the trends are saying soccer, football, NFL, college, and NBA, uh, that those are going to be the core sports. And it's not going to be baseball, and it's not going to be ice hockey. And so I know media organizations like the one I work at have certainly taken notice of that. And soccer is a sport now that you want to be involved in uh, in the U.S. if you want to be in a sport that has growing demand. Yeah, because I think the market is kind of it's it's so underdeveloped. I are we're gonna we're gonna close it up by talking a little MLS, which is actually a league that's near and dear to my heart. I know a lot of. Um, you know, soccer fans, soccer purists, people who watch the EPL every weekend and watch the Champions League, they don't like the MLS. They they kind of think of it as the redheaded stepchild, but I actually love it. I, I live in Kansas City, so I go to the Sporting Kansas City games a lot. And you nice. actually wrote a, a book about the Beckham experiment in 2009, which unlike a lot of these guys who have came over since then was actually, I mean, is it is it even possible to not call it a failure? You know, I mean, like that book was written after the first two years uh, of Beckham in the U.S. And those first two years, his Galaxy team wasn't good. Now, Bruce Arena comes in and they end up winning championships. And so in the end, it was a success on the field for Beckham during his time in MLS. And that was Uh, after he came back from the loan in Italy? Right. And, And you could also argue that from a celebrity perspective Beckham was a success in MLS the second he landed in Los Angeles um, because he drew more attention to the league 
And, and that's something you can't argue with. And, you know, the league was also really smart to get uh, Beckham incentivized to want to spend time building the league so that someday he could be an owner. And mm-hmm. it looks like that's going to happen in Miami. And um, you know, he stands to make a lot of money off that, but it's also money that I think he's earned. Yeah. So that is the, that was the establishment of the model. Um, it was, you know, retiring players, which does still happen. You know, Zlatan now is playing for the Galaxy and Andrea Pirlo played in New York City and Wayne Rooney is now going to come play in Washington, D.C. and, you know, just stand in the center circle, I think. But something that I don't, I would have not predicted this, but there are capable European players, guys, who would absolutely be getting minutes for, you know, at least Europa League teams, uh, Sebastian Giovinco, Carlos Vela, Romain Alessandrini, all of these guys actually do have Champions League minutes and, and they're just playing in the MLS now. They're just regulars in the MLS. And, you know, what, what model do you think is right? Do you think the, the designated player model with one of those guys or kind of the Atlanta United model where their, their whole team is just guys who were amazing in Latin American leagues and now, you know, they're – you know, Ezekiel Barco's kind of just using Atlanta United as his stepping stone to Europe rather than, the, you know, going on loan at, you know, Sporting Lisbon or whatever. And, and I'm kind of just interested in your thoughts of the direction of the MLS right now. Well, I certainly have no problem with MLS being a, st- a stepping stone for young South American stars on their way to Europe. Um, eventually, I think MLS wants to be a, a league that becomes a destination league that uh, that has top players from around the world in MLS in their prime. But I think we're a ways off from that being very common. You mentioned Jovinko, and he's clearly a guy who came to MLS in his 20s and has been one of the league's best players during his time here. And so I think that was part of the step kind of moving, you know, to get younger and younger players and not just be getting guys in their 30s. I would say Beckham actually came over at age 31, which is quite a bit earlier in his career than than Ibrahimovic, for example. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, Ibra barely can move at this point. And so, you know, I look at as, you know, I am somebody who, you know, Argentina is my kind of adopted country. And so I love to see young South American players yeah. come to MLS for a few years. And I think Atlanta United's been terrific about how they've approached uh, their player acquisition strategy, whether it's Barco, Martinez, Almiron, uh, Vialba, all those guys. I mean, I mean they, they've created something which did not exist in the MLS, which is like legitimately dynamic, like fun to watch soccer, which is, it's like great to see. Which is really cool, you know, and I think LAFC certainly done some similar things uh, in their first year. And so as a, you know, me personally, like, I think you're going to have some, some specific cases where guys in their 30s coming from Europe are a really good thing. I think David Villa has been terrific here in New York. Um, I think Ibrahimovic has the chance to be good, but the jury's still out. I think Schweinsteiger's actually overall been a pretty good signing for Chicago, even though he's probably getting paid a little too much this year. But, you know, like... I just would prefer overall, if, you know, the majority, I guess, to be guys in their, you know, their early 20s, late teens. Yeah, I think that's the, the, the best model for the league overall would be to not market themselves as the retirement home. Because I think that kind of became a joke. And it, 
it, it is awesome like to see when you, you go to a game and you see Bastion Schweinsteiger there and you're like, wow, this guy's won World Cups and Champions Leagues. But then you just kind of see, you know, he's hanging out. He kind of plays center back these days for Chicago. And it is cool, but it's it's more cool to see, you know, Darwin Quintero, who is like, you know, this amazing young player in Colombia who plays for Minnesota United now and is so dynamic. That's like, that's much more engaging as a viewer of the sport, I think. For me, it is. And I realize everyone has different tastes. And so clearly DC, if they get Wayne Rooney, is really going to try and leverage that name to get new fans and to come to the new stadium uh, in DC. I personally think it's not so much about whether, you know, Wayne Rooney as it is about for the money you're spending on Wayne Rooney, what else could you have gotten? Right. And I think they could have done something a bit more tailored to uh, a younger player to tapping into the Latino fans that we know exist in DC because they came out in the first years in the nineties for that team when they had players like Marco Echeverri and Jaime Moreno and uh, you know, Raul Diaz Arce. It's, it's interesting that in some ways Jaime Moreno and Marco Echeverri were sort of Atlanta long before Atlanta, you know? And, and so it's not, totally a new development in the league but Javi Moreno was just a really young really exciting South American player from a time when Bolivia was actually really good Mm -hmm. so uh, I guess this is well we can close on this do you think that the salary cap and no promotion relegation kind of stuff will keep the MLS from ever you know becoming what the big leagues in Europe are because I do think the money in the United States would theoretically exist eventually if soccer continues to grow in popularity and the MLS grows in popularity, but would the league sticking to a salary cap and sticking to the American style of league management, do you think it, it will hold it back from being whatever, you know, whatever its max potential could be? I mean, I guess what I would say is, is that you can have a salary cap like, that would have a, a cap of like a hundred million dollars yeah. on it. Right. So, I mean, it's not, I think it's possible to have a, a cap and still have some of the, you know, many of the best players in the world, theoretically. Uh, so I don't think that's holding back MLS uh, in terms of promotion and relegation. You know, I would be fine if it existed, you know, I, I like uh, promotion battles, relegation battles when I watch them from other countries I happen to also believe that I don't think the success of MLS depends on it. Sure. So if it, if it doesn't exist, uh, if it never exists, I think MLS can still get to where it wants to go. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you're right. And I think that is a great place to end. Fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the book and about your podcast before you head out? Yeah, I just want to say thanks so much for having me on. It's been good to talk to you. Uh, I'm from Kansas City originally as well, oh, cool. so it's it's neat to uh, to see how the sport there has grown and in many ways been revived by sporting Kansas City after yeah. you know, those owners after many years where soccer was just a dead zone there. Sporting Kansas City is mad. Like people like to go more than they like to go to Royals games, which is like pretty crazy. But yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's pretty cool, you know, and so. Um, in terms of my book, it's called Masters of Modern Soccer. As you mentioned, um, it is still pretty new. It came out May 1st, and 
part of the reason I wrote it was so that when people were watching this World Cup and kind of wanted to know what are these athletes thinking while we're watching them on the TV screen, well, this book gets into those questions and answers. And uh, in fact, some of these players who are in my book, you'll see at the World Cup, uh, Vincent Company, Groin Willing will be there. Uh, Manuel Neuer got uh, named to the German national team, so he's expected to start for the world champions. Uh, Roberto Martinez is coaching Belgium at this tournament. Um, you know, it's obviously unfortunate that Christian Pulisic will not be involved with the U.S. this summer. It but, is summer. Um, but that said, uh, I learned a ton over the two years of interviews that I did for this, speaking to all these guys, and uh, then it was just sort of up to me to get that on the page. And uh, these guys were so generous with their time and sharing their insight and some of their trade secrets, at least a few of them, that um, I'm pretty excited that this book's out there. Yeah, I am too. Everyone, I will have the link to the book on Amazon uh, in the show notes. Grant, thank you so much uh, for joining us. All right, everyone, that was Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated. Obviously, thank you very much to him for joining the show. Now, as promised, I said I would, if you left a five-star review on uh, Apple, I would read your podcast review no matter what it said. And so here we go. Uh, T.S., I really enjoyed the broad topics discussed on the first few episodes. For what it's worth, your episode with Dink made me want to slow down and just read a book like I used to. I mean, that's pretty much what we're going for, so thank you very much. Uh, Cameron9Web says, it's pretty decent. Davis is average, but his guests are great. Go Jeff Janis. You know, Jeff, if you're listening, I would love to do an episode with you. Uh, we got my boy Andy Cole, old FI listener. He said, it was sure nice to listen to a Davis podcast during MLB season that didn't include find the cheapest catcher in the starting lineup, whatever keeps him occupied. Uh, I absolutely uh, respect the sentiment, Andy. Uh, we have one from Scuddy Buddy, who said, I appreciated the discussion with Dink. I think I would opt for being a blob in VR. If you ever need a book to read up, pick up Name of the Wind, an incredible novel. Pretty interesting question. If uh, if you guys remember uh, episode four that I did with Drew, we, we discussed if we would live in an avatar world where you didn't know that your body was just hooked into a computer, you know, whether you would opt to stay in the real world, or opt to be a, a computer. We have one from Pancho Villarreal. I must admit, I use sports as a way to shut myself off from real-world problems. Although this podcast leans on sports, I love how Davis and his guests can mix in discussion on societal issues in a seamless way. Their views on the topic at hand seem genuinely objective and fair to both sides. This podcast is a breath of fresh air. That may be the nicest podcast review this show will ever get. Josh Mack 22 uh, titled his uh, review Full Route Tree. If you were expecting to hear the shouting of Cairo, guys, we're taking Cairo, you will be disappointed. If you want to hear more about decision making, process evaluation, and social political conversation, that's what you will get with this show. These conversations and questions about the process with the goal of getting better is why Davis has been excelling as both an analyst and a player in fantasy sports. Josh, I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I'm excelling at anything, but I do appreciate the kind review. Not business as usual, right? My extremely hungry brain craves thought-provoking chatter such as this. I want to listen to more of the smartest DFS lads chat about the demise of Western society. 
Please continue making these delightfully tangential convo pods. If someone doesn't like this pod, they are not a thinker or a learner, and they have not taken the red pill. They eat blue pills for breakfast, which they wash down with warm gin and delusion. Well, my friend, I agree that taking a red pill is always, uh, you know, the right way to go. Thank you very much for the kind review. And my favorite review, personally, as, uh, you know, a megalomaniac, Hammer Von Hammerington says, Davis Matic is a national treasure. My friend, I could not agree more with you. If you want a rating or review read on this show, leave a review on iTunes. Guys, it really does help a lot. I really appreciate it. Everyone who left a review, thank you so much. Uh, We'll have more episodes coming. Uh, I think Grant did a great job. Make sure to check out his book. The link will be in the show notes. And, uh, you know, thanks for listening, everybody.